Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. I'm co-founder of the online magazine, The Refined Woman, and my vision is to create a safe space where we can take off that Superman cape of having it all together and share our stories authentically and honestly. I really believe people are dying for the permission to be vulnerable, to just go there but it takes someone being willing to go there first. It's my desire to do just that and invite you and others to do the same by removing that shiny mask of perfection and courageously sharing the imperfect journeys of life, spirituality, love, business, and everything in between. Welcome to another episode of the Refine Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and today we have someone really special on the podcast. I have a doctor, a sexologist, Dr. Celeste Holbrook. I discovered her from another podcast I was listening to, Jen Hatmaker, and I was on an airplane and literally was scribbling down notes the entire conversation. And as soon as I got off the airplane, I followed her on Instagram and DM'd her, asking her to be on my podcast. And here we are today. So (laughs) Dr. Celeste Holbrook, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on here today. Oh, thank you so much, Kat. I'm so excited to be here and to have this conversation that I think really needs to be happening. And please do call me Celeste. You can forget the doctor stuff. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you work hard. People work hard to get that doctor, you know? Yeah. So I, I always want to respect the doctor. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> um, well, I, like I said, when I heard you on Jen Hatmaker's podcast recently about um, sexuality and growing up in Christian culture, I just was, first of all, I've never heard of a Christian sexologist. Mm -hmm. And so I was just fascinated by your story. And so many of the women that I talk to are single women of faith, just, you know, kind of we're we're kind of like out here blindly trying to figure out how to like be a woman of faith and navigate dating and today's like hookup culture and online dating and all the things. And it can just be really confusing. And I felt like in your wisdom, there's, there's such insight and grace. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I'm just so excited to see where this conversation goes and would love just to start off by asking you like who you are and what is a sexologist? (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. um, So thank you again for having me. It's such a a vulnerable topic and a hard topic. Mm -hmm. And I, my goal in life is to create safe spaces for women to talk about sex. And certainly through things like podcasts that where women can kind of listen and digest without being in a room full of people um, are a great Mm -hmm. way to do that. So thank you for inviting me on your podcast. So yeah, I I am a faith-based sexologist. My mission in life is to create safe spaces for people and women to talk about sex. And um, I typically see people um, in a virtual setting in my office, um, but I also do like speaking engagements and I do some writing here and there. But for the most part, my favorite thing is just 
talking about sex, just talking about sex, whoever, whoever wants to talk about it, whoever's going to listen, whoever is going to be willing to have that conversation. So um, that's kind of what my world and my work looks like. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis. It's really fun, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sounds fun. I mean, I love talking about sex and I think <laughs> if based off culturally, I think our culture does too. Yet somehow um, in this like weird world of um, faith circles and Christian culture, it's um, been a source of a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's, there's especially now, it's like the church has been very, my experience that the church has been really quiet in the wakes of a very loud purity culture of yes. the 90s and early 2000s. And yeah. so I guess my one of my first questions for you is like, did you always love talking about sex? Like, was this like always your plan? Like you were a little girl, you're like, I want to be a sexologist. (laughs) How did you get here? That's a really great question. And one that I get asked a lot. So I did grow up in the purity culture. I think I'm only a couple of years older than you are. I, um, I grew up where I went to the purity conferences. I had the purity ring. I grew up in a small town in Texas that was very conservative. My immediate family was pretty open about sex, but the school that I grew up in and the, and the place where I grew up was fairly conservative. So I made the choice to wait to have penetrative sex until I got married and I didn't date a whole lot. Um, and so I didn't really, I just didn't really have that opportunity to have sex. Mm-hmm. Not, not a whole lot of, you know, people were asking. <laughs> so, I know how that is. Yeah. Um, I feel, I feel like we're a lot aligned in this. Uh, I am six foot and I think you're a five, are you five ten? I don't know how I know this information. Yes. Oh my gosh. I did not know. I ha- you were a tall sister. A tall That's right. Yes. So with that said, I grew up in a small town and there were 32 people in my classroom and there were like about half of those were gentlemen and about one of those was taller than me. So I just didn't, (laughs) and I didn't really just have a whole lot of opportunity. So, um, which is fine. You know, um, I had a lot of fun. Uh, I grew up in a very loving home. I should, I should be clear about that. My home was very loving, not shame filled at all. Um, but still conservative. And yeah, so I ended up meeting my husband in grad school. I was getting my PhD and, um, we, um, we navigated that conversation early on. I, I kind of laid it out, I think on the second, second date, I think we were at a bar somewhere and I was like, listen, (laughs) this is what I'm doing. Um, if you're cool, you know, this is, this is why I'm doing it. And, like, I just want you to know, cause if you're ready to peace out after this conversation, I get it. That's fine. Totally understand. And he was just completely supportive and loving about it. And that's what I, that's kind of, I think I knew pretty early on. So did he that like, yeah, we're, we're probably a pretty good match. He was in, incredibly mm-hmm. respectful and incredibly, um, open to, to sharing those goals with me. So Anyway, we, um, we got married about a year and a half later and had penetrative sex for the first time. And it was really, really painful. Um, like it was really awful, really disconnected. And it continued. Like I thought just like, Oh, maybe this will, you know, get better after a few more tries, you know, but it just didn't. And it was awful. Mm. And I felt really confusing feelings because I, had waited. And I thought like, I thought this was the reward I got for waiting. Mm. You know, like I thought I was going to be rewarded with great sex, which 
now I understand it's not necessarily the case. You still have to work at it. Um, but we had really painful, um, sex and it started to, you know, we were newly married, newly together. We had moved away from medical school, from my husband's medical school. And so it was a hard time anyway. We were really broke and we were away from family. And so it started to kind of wear at our marriage. I felt a lot of shame for not living up to um, what I thought I should be sexually. I felt a lot of anger that he would want to have sex with me um, because it hurt me. It didn't feel good. And mm. I felt a lot of um, sadness that it just wasn't working out and something I had thought I had you know, waited a long time for, I thought it was supposed to be good and it wasn't. So fast forward, went to see the OB-GYN who told me I should just have kids, which is terrible advice. <laughs> oh my gosh. Did, I mean, I don't know if you mind me asking this, but did you have like endometriosis or anything like that? I did not. I think most of my pain was, um, psychosomatic. So, um, growing up in kind of the culture that I grew up in, um, made me feel fairly shameful about my body. And I feel like had me shut down. There were a few things physically that I was able to work on that got better. Um, like making sure I was super aroused before penetration, um, mm. so that my vagina was tinted and, you know, things that I just, nobody had ever taught me. Like even as a grad student, I didn't have good sex education and mm. I like using a lubricant and things like that. Like I just, nobody ever said anything about it. They just said, wait till you're married and then it's going to be great. And so there was just a lot of stuff that I didn't understand or know that I had to kind of learn on my own. So most of it was, um, for me personally, um, mental, like once I could get mm. my, my mental space there and my emotional space there, sex started to become less and less painful. Um, but that involved me like really deconstructing. And I think we're going to talk about this really deconstructing what I thought about sex and what, uh, what were the limiting beliefs I still carried, even though I was married about sex, that it was dirty or that I, that I, it was shameful or whatever, um, it was. And I went through that process of deconstructing those things myself so that I could enter into a sexual space and feel more comfortable and feel like, I was worthy of pleasure and I was worthy of sex that felt good. And I was worthy of getting aroused and all of those things. So eventually we worked through that and it got better. And I thought, you know what, if I'm dealing with this, I'm sure other people are dealing with this and having nowhere to turn to. So that was kind of the beginning of when I thought I, I could probably help somebody else. Maybe, you know, I was getting a degree yeah. already, a PhD in behavior and so I just started studying sexual behavior and started, um, I took postgraduate sexual behavior certifications and classes and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, fast forward, <laughs> you know, years later and I opened up my own practice. I worked for a big company for a while and then I opened up my own practice as a sexologist and here I am. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So when you say that, so you and in, you initially after, you know, having really painful sex, which I can only imagine the sort of mind screw that that must have been like, yeah. you know, we're taught like save yourself until marriage. And if it's not like a, an outright message, I think it's like a subtle message that we can receive from Christian culture that like, if you do this, God's going to do this for you. It's like this tit for tat thing. Yes. And if I'm a good Christian girl and save myself, then I'm going to have like awesome sex and I haven't had sex yet, but 
the problem that I've always had with that in my mind is like, but when I learned to ride a bike, like I wasn't good at it at first. (laughs) And I didn't like ride my bike the first time and then was like ready for the tour de France. Um, So I, even though like I like haven't had sex, like that always was like confusing to me. Um, And so you, it sounds like you're going through this process and you get to this point where you go to the doctor and it sounds like this doctor was super unhelpful and is like, well, your problems will be solved if you have children. Which <laughs> Stretch that what doctor, out. like who in their right mind is going to say like, well, if you're having marital problems, just add a child into the mix. Um, I know. That doesn't seem like a great plan. <laughs> Bless his heart. Um, yes, true. <laughs> and so like, how did you get having from- pen- At that point, like I, we weren't having penetrative sex. Like it was so hard. Like it was just off the table. Like I couldn't have had, you know, children in that room. Re- way if I even if I wanted to. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so what inspired you to actually do that work then? Like did something happen like because I feel like especially with I especially with this conversation, like there is so much shame. Like what propelled you to go through that deconstruction process? Oh man. Um really I just didn't know where else to go. Like I had asked, I had kind of talked to my mom about it, who was like go maybe see the OB-GYN because she didn't really know. And then I talked to my best friend who wasn't experiencing the same things I was experiencing or, or hadn't um, and hadn't experienced pain. And so I really just, it wasn't like a conscious choice. I really just started picking up books about sexuality and learning about sexual behavior. Just like you said, I had to come to realize that sex was a behavior, like riding a bike instead of like a phenomenon. I think we tend to think about sex as like, um, like something that's incredibly natural. And although it is a natural biological thing, it doesn't come naturally. Like you have to learn how to do it just like riding a bike or learning how to eat for your body or whatever it is, you know, it's something you have to learn and that takes time. And so if I had to do it all over again, I would have, kind of gone slower, even in my marriage bed, like, okay, let's try a little bit here. And if that goes well, let's try a little bit more there. You know what I mean? Instead of like, okay, floodgates open, let's do all the things, you know? So I, yeah, I guess it just kind of naturally, because I decided to start studying sex more, it naturally started to come up against those limiting beliefs of my past and be like, oh, I think I can't embrace sexuality or I can't embrace pleasure as my own. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah. I know something that you and I have just been emailing back and forth with, forth with about is this idea of shame. And the more I talk to women about their sexual past, whether it's a colored past or it's like, you know, a guy won't even like, give me a hug. Do I smell like onions or something? Like no matter where a person lands on the spectrum of sexual experience, it seems as though there's shame all along the Isn't way. There, though? I mean, have you noticed yeah, that? It's like, you can't win for losing. You're shamed if you have too much sex. You're shamed if you don't have sex at all. And like, there's this whole pendulum that we can't seem to like step out of very easily from, from the outside world. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the classic Madonna, can I say whore, Madonna whore complex, that you're either angelic or you're animalistic and there's nothing in between. But we are humans. We're in between. Mm. 
Wait, who does that, what does that line of thinking come from? You said Madonna whore. I haven't heard it called that The Madonna whore complex is like the idea that women are either Madonna-like, as in not Madonna the singer, but Madonna. I was like, Madonna? (laughs) Um, That they're either like asexual, like the Virgin Mary or Madonna, shame mm. for being sexual like Jezebel or, or whatever. So yeah, it's like dividing women into two sexual categories instead of letting us live in a nuanced spectrum. <laughs> wow. So I, the closest thing I've heard to that, and I'm, I'm so glad I know that where that came from is one of my favorite books on sexuality is Rob Bell's book called Sex yep, God. I have it right here on my desk. And- <laughs> So good. I've given it to so many people. I think I've read it five times Mm -hmm. at least. But he talks about, like, he has a chapter, I think it's called like Angels versus Animals. And he talks about, you know, culture says, like, I am the sum of my desires. And it's why you see, like, he gives an example of very famous actors and how they will like lose 50 pounds for a role or change their accents and be the most like disciplined people to execute their career, yet they get on set together and both of them are married and end up having an affair on their spouses with each other. And upon like talking about it, they say things like, well, we just couldn't help ourselves. Like it was animalistic or it just felt primal. Like we were just so drawn to each other. And just this idea of like, we are animalistic. Like we, like like animals, like if I have the urge, I, I can't not feed the urge. Um, and then on the other side of that, the church promoting this like angelic beings, which angelic beings are thought to be asexual. So like in the church, it's like, well, like shut off sexuality, like it's bad, it's gross, it's shameful, or it's like only within the context of marriage. And the problem that I have with like both of those ideologies is that, well, first it's like sex is the center of both. And so it feels like it flattens humanity because like, I'm not my sexuality. Like I believe in the teaching of Genesis one that like who I am as a child of God. Yeah. And like both stories, it's like this flattened view of what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally, I love Rob Bell's analogy there because it, it takes away the nuance of humanity. And so, you know, sex is yes, physical, but it also encompasses intimacy and vulnerability and love and understanding and heartbreak and trauma and, you know, and on and on and on. And so when we think about as only physical or as only angelic or spiritual, you're actually cutting out entire blocks of the human experience of, you know, belonging of worth of, consent of safety of, you know, all of these middle things that humans experience on a day-to-day level. Also, it's incredibly problematic when we say that sex is carnal and can't be helped because that excuses terrible behavior. (laughs) So that's a really, like, that's a whole nother podcast, right? But when we say that, Mm. you know, oh, I just can't help it, or we just can't, we couldn't control it then you're giving carte blanche for really for non-consensual behavior for, you know, manipulative behavior and all, all of these things that I feel like fall outside of holy sexuality. So let's talk about sexuality then. Like what is it? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> like, I was thinking today, I was like, how do, like, the more curious I've been about this topic, I, um, I put um, an Instagram post on my Instagram last week about sexuality. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the more comments I read, the more I realized like, wow, it's like, like sexual, trying to like get someone to talk about sexuality is like as elusive as like trying to like describe a French person, je ne sais quoi. <laughs> like, like it, uh, they have that thing, but like, what is it? And what I've noticed myself as I've kind of journeyed through it, it, it can feel like kind of elusive and mm. like, what is sexuality and does it belong to mm. me? Is it defined by my relationship status? Um, what does God think of my sexuality? Um, is it compartmentalized? Is it is it possible to be integrated into my spirituality? Mm-hmm. Um, does it mean just sex? Like what is, I think that there's, you start talking about sexuality and like the Pandora's box can just completely open. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I, you know, my job as a sexologist in my opinion, is not to be prescriptive and not to say this is what this is and what this is what this isn't, or this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. But I feel like my role is to help people ask better questions of themselves so that they can find their own answers, right? Because there's, you know, the billions of different people on this world have different billions of different behaviors um, and billions of different value systems. And so how do we navigate what is my value system as in in the context of what we're talking about what is sexuality what is my value system around sexuality that determines my behaviors around sexuality so sexuality in my mind or in my frame of reference is a va- you know something that we value a value system and then underneath it comes behaviors. So I feel like sexuality is kind of like this big umbrella. And underneath sexuality, we have like very physical iterations of sex. And we have spiritual iterations of sex. And we have intimacy and we have belonging and kind of some of those other things that we mentioned. And we have sensuality, which is a whole different beautiful topic. Um, but sexuality, I think, is displayed in a lot more different ways it's far wider and far farther reaching than a female, you know, somebody with a penis and somebody with a vagina interacting mm-hmm. in a certain specific way. I think it's far larger than that. And so what would you say is like a more expansive vision of that then? If it is more than just like penis and vagina, like how do you support your clients in determining what that is? Like, is there a framework that you use? Is there resources that are helpful. Mm. Yeah. I really like Gina Ogden's for dimensions of sex. She unfortunately passed away last year, but she's this very lovely sexologist that has, um, this kind of four dimensional approach to sex. It's really good that I would, maybe we can link up in your, Mm. in your podcast if you want. And then I kind of took that and made what I feel like is a good, framework for how at least to think about sex and sexuality. And that's taking Maslow's hierarchy of needs and then putting over a filter of sex. So now you have a sexual hierarchy of needs. And so this is, in my opinion, a more enriched way to think about sexuality. So just if for your listeners, if you haven't, you know, taken a psych class in a long time, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the bottom, mm-hmm. it's basically a pyramid 
and it describes our needs from the bottom up. So at the bottom of Maslow's is, you know, your physical needs, air, food, water. One up from there is safety, you know, that you have a house to live in or clothes on your back to protect you from the sun, that you're not, you're not going to get eaten by a lion anytime soon. And then everything above that are emotional needs. So love and belonging is above that. Those are the things that, you know, we want to live and survive and thrive in life. And then above that is um, self-esteem and above that is sexual or, or is self-actualization. So I took Maslow's hierarchy of needs and I placed a filter of sexuality over it. So at the bottom of our sexual hierarchy of needs, we have all of the physical stuff. So that's however you define sex, whether that's penis and vagina or penis and mouth or penis and anus or mouth and vagina. I don't know. However you want to describe sex biologically, that's how you would do it. And that's the bottom rung of understanding kind of our sexual hierarchy of needs. And then above that is safety and consent. Like how do you give and receive safe and consensual sex? And then above that are all of our emotional needs, like belonging. Do I feel like I belong in this sexual scenario? Do I feel like I'm in love with this person? Um, Must I be in love to have a sexual scenario? You know, those are things that we must come up against ourselves. And then up from there are things like pleasure and worth. And I feel like I'm good at these things. I feel like I know how to ask for my needs, wants, and desires. And then at the very top is sexual actualization, under which is the understanding that I understand whatever I do leads me towards or away from a um, positive sexual experience. And so for me, that was a good framework that I can use with clients to try and figure out where do we need to kind of discuss a little bit more? Do you understand how you fit into a sexual experience? Do you understand how you belong? Do you understand how to give and receive consent and what that looks like? Do you understand sexual self-worth? Like, do you understand what that, you know, what that means and looks like in your relationship and so on. So I feel like that gives a, a bit of a framework and it's just one way, my way, I guess, to describe sexuality Mm -hmm. or, or sexual needs. Um, but it's a way that it puts language around the fact that sexuality is far more than that bottom layer of what it looks like biologically and physically. Okay. All my single ladies, listen up, raise your hand. If dating as a single woman of faith in today's swipe, right, swipe left culture has been a struggle fest. I've experienced it at all from being stuck in the friend zone like it was my job to my dating life looking like the Sahara Desert to awkward setups to heartache to being ghosted and pretty much everything in between. But you know what I've discovered? It doesn't have to be this way. Truly. I know you're like, cat. you don't know me. You don't know my story. And you're right. But I know mine and I know what it's like to feel hopeless in this area of my life. And I know what it's like to move into my season of singleness and dating with hope and clarity and practical tools and freedom. And over the last few years, I've literally journeyed with thousands of women all over the world and walking into more freedom and purpose in their dating life. So I created a free guide for you to help you jumpstart your dating life and get unstuck. It's called Six Tips to Activate Your Dating Life. You can grab it for free at bit.ly slash TRW dating tips. In this guide, I will teach you the biggest mindset shift that will transform how you show up in your dating life. And then I'm going to show you how to get unstuck in your relationships. I know you want to meet a quality guy, but it's like, how, right? 
I got you, girl. Then the number one thing you can start doing today that will radically transform your season of singleness. And lastly, the three things I wish someone would have told me 10 years ago about dating. This guide is for you if you're a woman of faith that longs for a meaningful relationship but have no idea how to get there. Is that you? Then go ahead and go to bit.ly slash TRW dating tips and grab my free guide, six tips to activate your dating life. I think that's such an interesting segue into a conversation about like, what is sex? I kind of went through a whole experience six or so years ago where, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in the South. So like Christianity was like all around me. And when I became a Christian and learned about purity culture and abstinence until marriage, it seemed normal mm-hmm. enough for me. And then I was like, well, I'll probably get married and I'm like 19 because I live in Texas and and a lot of young Christians get married super young anyways. Um, and kind of similar to what you were saying earlier, like I didn't date a lot. I mean, I it's like I didn't struggle with not having sex because like I was like hardly <laughs> able to get a date. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> um, and then I went through a, like a huge journey in my 20s of, therapy and self-discovery and emotional intelligence and really through that going on this journey of discovering like my sexuality and how I had shut it down and how for such a long time I thought it was dirty and gross and scary. So then I started dating guys and I was like, oh, I'm like, I was like 26 at the time. And I was like, oh, so it turns out when I'm super attracted to a guy and we're kissing, I don't want it to end there. And on a lot of times I'd be like on date two and I'd be like, I'm waiting until marriage to have sex. Then a few hours later, we'd be like naked (laughs) in his bed, (laughs) like not having Mm -hmm. sex, but, and I just remember being like, what's the game plan, Harris? Like, you know, like you're saying, like, I feel like I got to this point where I was like, you know, I I was doing quote unquote everything but sex. And it really wasn't until I went through like a really, really painful breakup and felt like, man, what I did physically with this person in the moment as amazing and as beautiful as it was. And even though we quote unquote, didn't technically have sex like penis and vagina, I felt so attached to him and getting over him was really hard. And then moving forward and dating other guys, like I found myself getting to the place physically where I had been in that previous relationship way faster. And I kind of just got to this place where I was like, confused about what I thought about sex and just started wondering, like, is it more than just, like, is sex more than just, like, the actual, like, vaginal sex, like, penetration? And so I started doing research and discovered that, like, you and correct me if I'm wrong, this is just the research I found, was that three out of four women don't orgasm Mm -hmm. from penetrative sex. And so I was like, wait a second. So if, what if that's me? And let's say I'm like, I've waited all this time to have sex. And turns out like I've been reaching my sexual climax with people for years before I got married. And what do I think about that? And so I kind of went on this whole journey of like, is it possible that sex is more comprehensive Mm -hmm. than this? And 
I know, I feel like you have a lot of like insight on that and even just like, I don't know, science or I would just love to hear what you think about sex and what, what it is and yeah. how did you get there? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. That's really vulnerable, but I think that will be really connected for your listeners. And I know you've shared parts of that before too, but that's, that's a hard journey that you went through. And I want to give you so much credit. It's not even the right word. So much like encouragement that what you went through, um, is hard. And it's something that not, not everybody chooses to do because, um, really figuring out what it, what was best and healthiest for you is a really difficult process because it's easier when somebody else says, this is what's healthiest for you (laughs) instead of figuring out Mm -hmm. what it is what's healthiest for you on your own. Um, and, and for you, it sounded like it had, you know, it had heartbreak in it and it had really painful parts of it. So lots of, um, in, in awe and inspiration from you about going through that journey yourself. So yes, you are correct in that about, we think about 75% of women have their first and most of their orgasms through clitoral stimulation. So I'll give you a little bit of what I find interesting history. (laughs) Um, So um, back when Sigmund Freud was like the jam, everybody thought that Freud was, you know, the the best psychologist out there, psychotherapist out there. Um, He decided to tell the community of mental health practitioners that if a woman had an orgasm through clitoral stimulation after puberty, she was considered infantile or childish because she was supposed to be having orgasms vaginally instead. And if she was still doing it clitorally, then she was not mature. Um, and so <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> I know. Girl, I know. What? This is what happened. <laughs> So he was the one who coined the term frigid. So if women were coming to see him or to see any practitioner and they were saying, well, I just can't have an orgasm through penetrative sex. They were being labeled as dysfunctional frigid. Yeah. So we continued on. Nobody questioned this. And we continued thinking that women who couldn't have an orgasm through vaginal penetration were something was wrong with them. Um, throughout a long time, and we won't go through all the kind of like the history of Masters and Johnson and Kinsey and all this, but, um, I will tell you that in 1998, 1998, we were, you and I were probably like in middle school or something, 1998, this, um, urologist from Australia named Helen Connell, started to notice that when they were doing surgery, she's a surgeon, when they're doing surgery on men, there were all of these very specific um, clamps and tools that the surgeons would use to make sure that the nerves around the penis, um, the pleasure nerves around the penis were not damaged. Um, But when we were doing surgery on women, like urology surgery on women, there was nothing in place to protect the um, nerve anatomy of the clitoris. And so Dr. Helen, bless her, she decided that this was probably not good, that we could probably be damaging, you know, the clitoris if we continue to do it this way. So she went to the cadaver lab, dissected the clitoris 
and discover that it was far larger than just the little piece of flesh that you see kind of externally. Um, and that actually went down and around and into the vulva and underneath the labia. And it kind of has legs that kind of go down and around. So she was the one in 1998 who got the entire clitoris recognized in Grey's Anatomy, which is the book, not just a show. It is actually the <laughs> the book that people use to, to uh, medical students use to um, study anatomy. She got it recognized in Gray's Anatomy by putting it into the Journal of Sexual Medicine that the clitoris is far larger than we give it credit for being and that we should protect it because damaging it can damage the female pleasure systems. So that all to say that Freud told us we shouldn't be having clitoral orgasms and we left it that way from the 30s and 40s all the way through to landing on the moon in 69 and discovering the internet in 82. And it wasn't until 1998 that we kind of embraced the clitoris as a fully pleasured, you know, anatomy system that's only job is for pleasure. And so now we're kind of like, relearning as females that it's okay that we have orgasms through clitoral stimulation. And that's kind of the function of our clitoris. And maybe that redefines this kind of patriarchal view that sex is only penis and vagina, because that's very limiting, for example. So I have clients who maybe don't have an erection, maybe because of diabetes, can't get an erection and can't have penetrative sex, or maybe clients who don't both have opposite anatomy or maybe can't functionally have penetrative sex. So does that mean that these clients can't connect sexually? No. So I think defining sex as penis and vagina is incredibly limiting and it doesn't take into account the vastness of what sex, even just physically, can look like. Because I believe that two people can have an incredibly sexual experience that's connective and pleasurable, and they live on opposite ends of the globe, you know, through our technology and whatever. So I think limiting the term sex to penis and vagina is marginalizing. I think it is limited, and I think it it produces lots of shame. And that's my, like, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I get this in my soapbox. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And even as you're talking, like so many things are coming up in my mind, like just kind of dispelling some of the limiting beliefs as you were calling them, or even just shameful narrative mm. from Christian culture. Like if God created humanity, like for me, I always go back to like, what's my source of truth? And as a person who follows Jesus, that is the Bible. And in the climax of the creation account, in the Hebrew creation account, God breathes life into humanity and says, let us make man and woman in our image and our likeness. And then he called the rest of creation good, and but he mm-hmm. called man and woman very good. And that's always made me pause and wonder, like, you know, God didn't say that my mind is good or mm-hmm. my spirituality is good, but my <laughs> right. vagina is scary. Like, yes. no, like, he said his creation was very good. And so I think even just the fact that you said, like, the clitoris, the only job for the clitoris is pleasure. I think some some Christians can think, like, oh, like, sex is only for procreation. And my again, one of my problems with that is the Bible. You read an erotic story like the Song of Solomon. Like, there's pleasure in, in sex and 
I, I can't remember if I heard you say this, but like, if sex was just for procreation, like, why do we feel pleasure from it? Or if like food was just meant to nourish us, like, why do we have taste buds? And so it just, it, it, it just, I love yeah, that. Like God yeah. made the clearest <laughs> for pleasure. Like, I think that's so beautiful. And I also think, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, but just even going from an atheistic perspective, like Freud is an atheist, um, to like, what is an actual like biblical vision for sex? Like, is it just mechanics? Is it just sex? Is is just penis and vagina, um, as Freud is saying? And when I look at the God of the Bible, I see even just like when the Israelites needed food and God provided manna, like, yeah, they had a physical need. But I think that there is always more to the story with God. Like the physical is never about the physical. It always points to something deeper and something spiritual. And God provided the needs for the Israelites. But in that, he was also showing like, I am a protector. I am a provider. Um, I can I can meet your needs. Like I am trustworthy. And then I see progressively through scripture, um, through the teachings of Jesus, like Jesus was talking in parables all the time and mm. stories. And the stories were never just about the stories. They were about some message or purpose or pointing to spirituality or growth. And so when I look at that principle throughout scripture and how God is, then it's very possible for me to believe that like like sex isn't just about sex. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's more expansive than that. And, and even could point to the spiritual. What are your thoughts on like the connection of our sexuality with our spirituality? Do you feel like they merge at all? Oh yeah. I mean, I do. I feel like sex is a holy act of worship. And I, I realize this is, I'm, I'm speaking from my own individual self at this point, not a practitioner, but um, yes, I, I think sexual pleasure is a normal part of humanity that was created for us and that repressing it um, leads to shame and secrecy and sexual acting out really. Um, and, you know, I think that when we think about pleasure in the context of like the biblical text, it's often maybe confused with hedonism, which basically doesn't consider the consequence or impact on others. So I feel like hedonism is like a very different, like in its own other box, whereas pleasure is acknowledged, like in Matthew 6, 26 by Jesus. I think Jesus loved pleasure. I think he went to parties. I think he laughed a lot. I have this vision in my head of a laughing Jesus because that's the one that I want to be like and I want to follow. And um, he took pleasure and I think he was sensual in how he interacted with people and how he interacted with food or, um, or even children and animals. So I think we can't have the conversation about pleasure and spirituality without having the conversation about sensuality, which I think we were, you know, maybe getting there for a a minute, but I feel like we were created to be sensual beings. Like if we think about the term sensual in that it, it is just the use of all of our five senses that that God created in us, um, we can look at a toddler sitting in the grass and see how sensual that toddler is. Like that toddler is picking up the grass and putting it in his mouth and throwing it up in the air and seeing if the air carries it and smelling it and touching it and feeling the texture of it. So when we think about us as sensual beings, um, we are literally experiencing 
the creation and the creator through all five of our senses. And I think that's how we can very, we can connect to our spiritual side. So even if you think about sensuality as presence, because we can't experience our senses in the past or in the future, we can only experience our senses in the current moment, like what I'm feeling, what I'm tasting, what I am seeing in the current moment. Um, And I feel like in the current moment is when we best experience God and our spiritual Mm -hmm. and our spirituality. Um, And in our current moment is when we are the best listeners and the, the best um, um, the best at communicating. And so using our senses to be in this moment, you know, I can only feel the texture of this grass right now. And what is it, you know, what does that say to me? What is that? What is God trying to reach to me in this moment where I'm feeling the texture of the grass, which is just a simple analogy. But when it comes to, you know, bigger things like meditation and prayer, sensuality is there too. Like it is the being in presence, the being in this moment only where we can experience like higher powers in my opinion. (laughs) I think that's so beautiful. And I just wrote down on my notes, 4341 timestamps. So good. Um, Because I've just, I've never thought about about it that way. Like that we can't experience our senses in the past. Like we can conjure up things. Or I just think about when you, how smell just like brings you back to an experience. Whether it's like smelling like a guy walk by me and he's wearing the clone of someone that I liked in high school or something like something about the senses when they get activated is there's like something otherworldly about it. Yeah, I've never thought about sensuality in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I think when I think, when I think about it in that sense, in that sense, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) it begs the question for me of then what is it to be connected to my sensuality and my sexuality as a person like me, Celeste, like a person who, you know, I'm in my thirties, I am single, I'm dating, but I'm, you know, I'm on a path where I've chosen celibacy until marriage. And, um, what is it for a person like me to stay connected to her sexuality and sensuality while also kind of holding to this view of abstinence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were here in the office, I would ask you to explore what celibacy means to you. Right. And you don't have to do this in front of your, all of your listeners, but you know, what celibacy means to you. And then, you know, exploring how your sensuality and your sexuality are very related. Right. Mm -hmm. So for example, when we think about um, pleasure with another person, it is most enjoyed. And when we, when we hear words like, Oh, I just lost myself or I was in another mm. world. I was in another, I was, you know, I, I was just totally in flow or totally in focus. That is presence. And that mm. is sensuality. I was only in my body. I was only feeling these things. I wasn't anxious about the future. I wasn't worried about the past. I was only in this moment. And that can be practiced on a daily 
basis, even if you're choosing not to have sex or some sort of version of sex, you can still practice sensuality. And, and when you're ready, when it feels healthy for you to interact in a sexual way, you will be ready because you know how to practice sensuality. And you have this beautiful blog that I read where you talk about like buying the nicer underwear, I think, mm-hmm. and yes. dancing. And yes. like, you do this cat, you do this naturally. Yeah. You're good at this, um, embracing your sensuality. And so when it comes to sex, like using all of those skills of embracing presence and sensuality in your sex life, it will be easier right? Because you've embraced it in all these other areas of your life. And then on top of that and added to that, I think practicing healthy communication, I think is the other really big piece. So if you are in a dating relationship, practicing talking about sex, even if you're not having it, that's okay. And that's encouraged because if you're with the right person who values the same things you value, talking about sex will be liberating instead of confining. I think that's that is a, such a fascinating point to me because you're so right. I well, I think like we have this like weird vision, and I think this is one of the myths that I want to debunk and and definitely in Christian culture of like sexual our sexuality is not a switch, yes. and it's not like we magically get this like ring slipped on our finger and are like a sex goddess. Yet we're not a victim to that either. So the decisions I'm making now today as a single person are preparing me for a day in the future and learning how to communicate my needs now, even, even in platonic friendships, like that to me seems like that would serve me in my sexual relationships. And (laughs) even just in a dating relationship saying like, I like it when you kiss me like that, or I love it when you hold my hand like that, or (laughs) When you, you know, touch my leg, it makes me feel sexy or it makes me feel beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, putting words to some of those things seems like it would, it could actually help me in my future sex life. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And being able to have words around what you want and what you don't want and be able to express them freely because you know they'll land on on, um, open ears in your partner or in your best friend or whomever, you know, Mm -hmm. is absolutely essential. So when you get to the point where you're ready to have sex, you can have any of of those conversations like, Oh, I, I, even in the heat of a moment where your partner is really feeling into it and you're not, you can have the confidence to say, Oh, I need, I really need to slow down. I really want to change this position or I really would like to stop this, you know, because Mm -hmm. you've practiced it in the small things in, Oh, I really like it when you hold my hand in public or whatever those conversations look like. Um, I have a, this, um, 20 sex enhancing questions as a freebie on my website that you can download. And even if you're a single right now, I would encourage you to go through and find some sort of list of questions about sex to practice talking about, or even to practice thinking about for yourself, like what would be your favorite view during sex and how would you like your partner to initiate sex? And what are the things that you can do during the day that helps you feel comfortable in the evening? You know, some of those things that we aren't taught how to talk about, um, can be very helpful for you. Even if you're not having sex right now to be able to talk about when the time comes, you feel like it's a healthy time for you to have sex. 
That's so helpful. And I cannot wait to, after we get off this call, download that freebie. Um, yeah. So, Celeste, what would you say to the woman who's listening to this where maybe this conversation feels like, whoa, mm-hmm. like this conversation maybe feels scary or shame inducing? What would you say to her? What would you like have to say to her in that? Um, or, and or do you have any like final thoughts for like a woman of faith who's just navigating this or is trying to discern like what is what is sexuality and what is the damaging messages I received growing up? Yeah. Just kind of all of that. Yeah. Um, so if you're listening to a conversation about sex and it feels a little triggering for you, um, just know that whatever you're feeling is valid. You know, feel what you need to feel. There's there's no um, there's no judgment, you know, on, on what you're feeling. Your, your mind is telling you something, um, that it's afraid, that it's sad, that it is feeling ashamed, that it is feeling whatever it is, you know, because of, because of something. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, first be aware of what that is, um, and feel validated that those are, those are real feelings. And then maybe get curious, like, why is it that I felt scared when I heard Kat and Celeste talking about the clitoris? You know, why mm. is it that I felt angry when we were talking about this and that, you know, like get a little bit curious and then, and then, um, start to find some answers through ex- exploration. If that's some more reading or talking to somebody or, you know, exploring it with some safe friends or whatever. Um, I, really believe that our God is one that encourages curious questions, um, and sincere questioning. So I think that any of those questions that you come up with will, will land on soft ears. If that's God's ears or your friend's ears or, um, a professional's ears, you know, those are, are good things and they will lead you to a new space cat. Just like you did that kind of questioning and it led you to the space that you are now. Um, So yeah, get curious and that that's okay. That's absolutely okay. That's so helpful. And like God is not afraid of our curiosity and, and not surprised by our questions. And I think we just have so much permission to be curious. Um, So I think that's such good insight, Celeste. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you have any like specific resources or like, obviously like you have the, sex question, enhancing sex questions on your website. Do you have any other resources that you specifically offer that um, women could get access to? And then do you have any books that you would suggest for someone who's curious about navigating this topic? Absolutely. Um, And before I forget, thank you so much for having me on, Kat. And our discussion is delightful. I want to just keep talking forever and ever. Me too. Um, <laughs> Thanks for being on. Yeah. So I I offer free 30-minute discovery calls. So if there's something in this podcast that made you think, I want to explore this idea, concept, thing more <laughs> with a professional, like please do just go to my website or maybe we can link it in your show notes, Kat. Um, 
you just click hit, you know, a 30 minute complimentary discovery call and you and I will get on a call and we'll just have a girlfriend to girlfriend chat about what's going on. And my whole goal for those is to give you the resources to help you continue on your exploration. So that is something that I can offer to you. Um, I do have some courses or one-on-one consulting, you know, that if that feels like it's the right thing for you, um, we can do that too. But the entryway really is just to have just a call. Let's just get on a call and talk about what would be helpful for you and not helpful for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then books. Um, I love, there's several books right now that I really like. You mentioned Sex God by Rob Bell, which is an older book, but it's very, very good. I really like that one. There is another book called Good Christian Sex by Bromley McLennigan. I don't know how to say her last name, um, but that kind of explores purity culture and what mm-hmm. and what kind of it has what, like what it is basically and, um, how this pastor has navigated it. Um, and then there's another book called shameless by Nadia Boltzweber. That's very good. Um, a little bit more on the liberal side, um, that I find that her, her thoughts on, on sex are very good. Um, and then a straight up sex book that might feel good for some of your listeners to read is called Come As You Are by Dr. Emily Nagoski. And she just really, you know how we were talking about how we just didn't get very good, or at least I did not get very good sex education or didn't understand that sex was like a behavior you had to learn. This book, um, Come As You Are, helps you learn those behaviors. So whenever you're ready to have sex, you feel more equipped. (laughs) That's awesome. And I love the title. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended, right? Very intended. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so good. Um, well, I am so grateful to have had you on here. And I think a huge part of my heart here is to normalize this conversation for women of faith and to kind of make something that feels really taboo, like not as taboo mm-hmm. and Um, because I don't think God's embarrassed by Mm -hmm. sex. Um, I don't think he's afraid of it. And I don't think he's near as prudish as we can be at Mm -hmm. times. Um, So I'm just really grateful for your insight. I feel like I learned so much from our, from our call and I just can't, I can't wait to read your book one day. (laughs) So whenever that comes out, I'm going to be the first in Oh, you're so kind. That's very sweet. And 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 I I'm, I'm hoping that that someday you'll have one too and we can just like tour together. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. We'll take care Celeste and hope to see you soon. All right. Thanks, Kat. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Refined Collective podcast. If you are new here, maybe you've listened for a long time and there's topics, questions, comments, concerns that you have about what we're up to, follow us on Instagram, The Refined Woman. Send me a DM and I will get back to you and let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know what you want to talk about. And I would love to make that happen for you. Have such a fabulous day. (laughs) Bye.